Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, Yet believing, rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which, by the gospel, was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. We are making our way through the first chapter of First Peter. Our sermon this morning basically focuses on the end of verse 7 and extending through verse 12. This is a very pregnant passage. There's all kinds of things here. We will be here for a while, and thanks be to God, because there is a treasure chest here in this passage. In just these few verses, I note there are six things that truly, truly stand out that we ought to take note of. The first one is, it cannot be read, but what the central focus of our faith is nothing other than the man, Jesus Christ. Here again, the end of verse 7 through verse 9. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The religion we call Christianity is about a person, a singular individual. It is Jesus. He was born in Nazareth. He is a man but he is the Christ. We are so used to hearing the word Jesus Christ together, we tend to just take it as his name and move on. But the visible church of Jesus Christ had been waiting for literal millennia for the revelation of the Christ. They were promised one particular prophet who would be the fulfillment of all the prophets, God's final prophet to men. They were waiting for one particular priest who would be the fulfillment of all the priestly office, whose sacrifice would be final and total. They were waiting for one particular king who would be the son of David, who would govern forever. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the New Testament, God's people were talking about there is coming one anointed person who would be that. And Peter tells us we love and we believe in. We have joy inexpressible in holding on to Jesus the Christ. In the first century, that term alone would sum up what would be called the good news. We have longed for the priest. We have longed for the king. We have longed for the prophet. We have had light in shadow, but we have longed for the light with no darkness at all that we were promised. Peter says, Jesus is the Christ, and you love him. He is the focus of your love. The term love has been so diluted and so overused in our culture that it is easy not to think of the implications of those words, but 
what do you truly love? Do you love many things? Can you, when you consider what love really is, say that you have many, many loves or is your love very focused? Is very few things on earth and heaven worth honestly saying, I love him or that? In the truth of our hearts, love is a truly intimate thing and something that we should certainly reserve for very few targets. And in truth, we do if we consider what love really is. And Peter assumes that we, his audience, the disciples of Jesus Christ, love Jesus Christ. If we say that he is the focus of our love, he must be the focus of our attentions and focus. Love is exclusive. Love is binding. Love is pledging. Jesus the Christ is at the heart of our love. He's at the heart of our faith. Again, the term faith comes up again and again in the Bible. We may not even think about it when it appears. But our faith is what we put our absolute trust in. Trust and faith are synonyms. What you have faith in is what you absolutely depend on it's what is non-negotiable. It is what, at the end of the day, you will not let go of. Uh, Jesus is the focus of our faith. And Peter says that he is the focus of our love and of our faith, even though we have not seen him. We have heard of him. We have had sermons preached to us about him. And what those sermons have been and the significance of them, we will look at at the end of the sermon. But it is significant that we have not laid eyes on Jesus the Christ. There were some who did in the Gospels. They heard him. They saw him. He ministered to them. But you and I are in the same boat as those who were in Pontus and Galatia and such receiving this letter. We have never formally stood in his presence. We don't know what he looks like. Every image that has been made to be put before our eyes is a lie. We don't know what he looks like. But he is the focus of our faith. He is the focus of our love. He is the focus of, of the centrality of what we really are, because that's what faith and love is. We have been given to focus on him, and we do. That itself seems rather supernatural. How can 2,000 years of godly people pass from generation to generation to generation and ardent love and ardent trust in an individual that none of us have actually talked to or stood in the presence of? How can we honestly love him and trust him? Relational things, well, it has to be by the hand of God. We don't love and trust anybody else who we have never seen or heard, but we have at the very core of our being, because of our faith, because of the testimony of our faith, a true 
feeling, to use no better word that comes to mind, a sense that he is real and he is present and he does hear and he is worthy of our trust, how can we have that in our core being but what God himself has to have placed it there? And God has indeed done that. In fact, this Jesus, who is the Christ, is the very focus of our joy, says Peter. We have joy, which is the highest of human emotion and then beyond, because joy is more than emotion. Um, It is so significant to what it means to be human that the Bible tells us that you really can't put in words what joy is. Uh, Even here, we have an inexpressible joy. But joy is extremely important to us. It is uh, that which gives us the, the sweetness of living. Without joy, there is no desire to live. And Peter says the focus of our religion finds our joy in this Jesus of Nazareth, and with that joy, we rejoice. We have the noun, which leads to the verb, And the rejoicing that comes from that joy is so great that Peter has to describe it as inexpressible and full of glory. What a contrast to what we find in Psalm 4, where there the prophet David looks across humanity and says, Many, O Lord, are saying to me, where can I find anything good? It is, to my mind, the ultimate expression of cynicism. And David puts it out there as most human beings are there. Once you have uh, put off the illusions of childhood, there's a deep cynicism. Nobody will give you a free lunch. Nobody is good. Nobody is not trying to take advantage of you. Many have said to me, oh, Lord, where can you show me any good? And then the psalmist goes on to say, oh, Lord, show your countenance to them, saying that you are the source of goodness and joy. Well, Peter takes this in the positive and says, because of who we are in Christ, God has given us this joy, and it is full of glory. Glory is a term that in the ancient world was extremely important. Men lived or died to achieve glory. And if you read the works of ancient men, this term is the crown they want to wear. Uh, Glory is that thing that says my life was worth living and I am significant and people will think well of me. It It is the trophy of life. Peter says this joy we have in Jesus the Christ, it is full of glory. The world will look and see, and the world is saying, who will show me any good? But here are the people of Jesus Christ. They are filled with joy to the point where their rejoicing shines like the brightness of the sun in the midst of the rest of the world. And the rest of the world must gasp at the joy God has given us. This is indeed the centrality focus of our faith. It is also the central focus of this epistle. Everything that Peter writes in this letter is about the man, Jesus the Christ. 
Indeed, everything that is written in all the epistles in the New Testament are centrally focused on this man, Jesus the Christ. That's what they're about. Growing up in a nominally theistic home, I was told many, many times, uh, you read too much. You read the Old Testament too much. You focus on the writings of Paul. Uh, you should just focus on the Gospels because, well, the Gospels are about Jesus Christ. Well, the Gospels are about Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong with this admonition is the idea that the rest of the Bible isn't focused on Jesus the Christ. Indeed, it is. You cannot know Jesus of Nazareth in his fullness. You cannot know the man without the totality of what God has revealed in the Bible. And ironically, God has presented Christ in a way that the United States Army would deeply approve of. My father was a military man, and while he was being trained in the military, he was taught to communicate. And he told me the military way of communicating is because people are rather dense, uh, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you then tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Because quite frankly, it'll sink in somewhere. Well, if you look at the way that God has communicated in his word, the Hebrew scriptures are effectively God telling us what he's going to tell us. Everything in the Hebrew Bible points forward to Christ. There is not one line of it which is not centered on the man Jesus the Christ. If you read the Hebrew Bible without knowing that, you're not really reading the Hebrew Bible because that's what it's all about. God is telling us what he's going to tell us. The Gospels are God telling us. Jesus the Christ, the central focus of our faith, is walking among us. He is talking to us. A generation is seeing him. God is speaking what he's going to say. And then what is Acts to Revelation? It is God telling us what he told us. He is bringing more light to bear on who this Jesus of Nazareth is. The entire book is about Christ. Everything is central about Christ. There is nothing in all of our faith that is not rooted on Christ. Secondly, it is interesting to me that they are assumed to, quote, believe in him, uh, and that is why they are assumed to love him. Peter writes, you do believe in him. Peter writes, you love him. Why is he able to just put those two things together back to back and make an assumption about them? There is enough of this assembly congregation that has not heard this that I'm going to tell it again. Those of you who have heard this like four or five times, just set your eyes. But um, you know how the evangelical world loves John 3.16. And that's good. I mean, 3.16 is God's word. But if you ask them, what is your favorite verse of the Bible? They'll tell you John 3.16. They'll tell you the gospel is summed up in John 3.16. Um, the earliest of churches had John 3.16. They had the gospel of John. They knew it was there. They quoted it. But they didn't treat it quite the way we do. 
if you asked the earliest Christians, the Christians from the first century, second century, third century, what is your favorite verse of the Bible? Uh, if you read their writings that they left to us, the answer is very clearly Galatians 5, 6, which reads as follows. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. If you ask the early church, they said, that's our favorite verse. That sums up the entire religious understanding. Well, how does that work? Well, you have the reference to circumcision. It's a focus on the former way that God had revealed his covenant. There has been a change in the covenant. God has brought fullness to bear in Christ so that uh, circumcision no longer is the significant sign of the covenant. But the heart of the covenant is that God has given faith. Faith is saving. I mean, if you look at the entirety of the New Testament, what does God work salvation through? It's through the gift of faith. You trust in Christ, so faith is there. But faith works because faith always loves. You don't have faith in Christ if you don't love Jesus Christ. Now, love is not faith, but faith is never absent of love. If you say, I have faith in the Lord Christ, that is the rock-solid foundation of who I am. I am trusting in Christ alone. And then you cannot look yourself in the eye in the mirror and say, I love Christ. I adore Christ. I have been given a passion for him that is true love. Your former confession is a falsehood. You are guilty of what the Puritans called the sin of presumption. You think you have faith in Christ, but if you don't actually love him and adore him, if your heart doesn't fill with wonder at him, if he is not your deepest passion, faith always has love. There are many who will tell you, I walked away from the faith. I was raised Christian, uh, you know, I know all about it. I was raised in Sunday school. I, I got taught the gospel. I can quote John 3.16. Uh, but I walked away. I, I'm not a Christian now, although I was. Were you? Did you love Jesus Christ? Did you have a passionate adoration for him? Was your faith seen in the way you adored him? I doubt it, honestly. Faith always loves Christ. Faith is not just a matter of knowing the right doctrines, although that is part of it. Faith is not just a matter of trust itself, but faith generates adoration. And if you don't love Christ, you don't have faith in him. But if you do love Christ, then what does love do? Love does the works of God. 
does love do the works of God to earn God's favor? Of course not. We have faith in God. We have faith in what Christ has done. But because we love Christ with a passionate heart, because we are in love with him, how can we not do those things that cause our Lord to have joy in his heart? I mean, if we really have faith in him, how can we not love him? And if we love him, how can we not serve him? Think in terms of your own relations. I love my wife. I don't care to do anything she likes me to do, but I love her. How's that fit together? Does it fit together? You know it doesn't. So the early church said the summation of the religious life is that God has brought us under the era of circumcision, into the era of Christ. We have faith in Christ, that faith loves Christ, and we work for Christ because we love him. That is the gospel. And here, Peter assumes we have faith in Christ. He assumes we love Christ because that is, in fact, the summation of the Christian life. Third, I would point out that the end of our, quote, faith is, quote, the salvation of our souls. That's what Peter says, right? You are receiving the end of your faith, the goal of your faith. It is the salvation of your souls. What is your soul? Well, biblically, the term soul is your life essence. But it's not just your spirit, it's who you are, both body and spirit. It's who you are when your spirit is in your body. We oftentimes use the term soul, and we mean spirit, because quite frankly, when the spirit leaves the body, you don't really have body anymore, you have hamburger, and so it's very easy to think about soul and spirit as the same thing, but biblically they're not. Biblically, the soul is your whole self, but... uh, the focus of our faith, the, the, the end of our faith, is that our soul is saved. Is that what fills up the churches this morning? Uh, there are a lot of people currently in churches in Kentucky right now. According to the statistics, about 19% of our uh, Commonwealthians are sitting in a pew. Are they there because they want their souls saved? When I was a child, we attended a Disciple of Christ church. My father was an ordained Disciple of Christ minister, and so it was only natural to go to a Disciple's church. We did that for uh, a year or two until my father got another boss, and my father's boss was a Methodist. And we suddenly began to go to the Methodist church downtown. Had my father had an epiphany? Well, no, other than this would be good for business. The truth is, uh, people enter the sanctuary this morning for hundreds of reasons, only one of them being the actual thing they should be seeking. You, as a human being, start off life lost. You are not saved, you are endangered. The opposite of being saved is that you are in true distress. Something bad is going to happen to you. And you are born that way. You are born with a sinful nature. You are born in enmity with God. 
you are born in need of reconciliation with God, and God has provided Jesus the Christ, the central focus of our religion, to be the salvation of our souls. Not to make us winners in life. In fact, many of your fellow believers will go through life and the world will look at the outcome of their life and say, what losers are those people? They made decisions that did not generate them the wealth they could have made if they made others. Uh, you will have brothers and sisters in the faith who will suffer from terrible diseases and they will even die from those diseases. You will have brothers and sisters that will experience heartache and sorrow and betrayal. And uh, the world will say, well, where is their God? Well, the end result of our faith is not deliverance from any of those things. In fact, in Bible study this morning, we even heard that God will put some of those things in our lives for his own reasons, for his own glory. God will allow, indeed will place, enemies to torment us. The focus of our faith, the end result of it, is not victory in any sense that the world acknowledges. It is the salvation of our souls. We will be delivered from the wrath of God. We will be delivered from this world. The way Peter puts it in his second epistle is this, chapter 1, 2 Peter. Uh, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter is effectively defining what he said when he said you will have the salvation of your souls. He is saying you will become a part of the family of God. You will have a divine nature. You will not become God. You will not be little gods. I mean, it's a mystical statement and a lot of false ideas have been attached to it, but you will be given a family likeness of God, and you will be uh, delivered from the corruption that is in this world because of lust, because of desires that are against the will of God. You will be delivered from this world, and you will belong to God and his things. That is what the salvation of your souls are. Uh, <clears throat> If you are truly in love with Jesus Christ, if you are truly depending upon him and nothing else, then that is exactly what you want. You want to be delivered from this world, and you want to live with him. He is not worldly. Now, make no mistake, the deliverance of your souls, the salvation of your souls, has this world implications. When Peter defines this in 2 Peter, he says God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Both are things that you do in this world. But though they are in this world, they are not worldly. They are living according to the 
coming world. They are living according to God's kingdom. They are living in relationship to God, because that's what godliness is. Um, you are delivered from this world. Everything in this world is, is fading away, says Peter. Because mankind's nature lusted against God's will, this world is cursed, and everything in this world is disappearing. Those things that you treasure, those things that say that you are a status and importance. I always like to ask my class at EKU, um, what are people going to remember about you in 120 years? They will remember nothing about you in 120 years. They may find you in some dusty book. They may do some ancestor look up and get a detail or two. But the truth is, everything that you are working for in this world, everything that this world would say is status and glory for you, 120 years from now, it ain't going to matter. Not at all. But you are receiving at the end of your faith, which is focused on this man, Jesus Christ, the salvation of your souls. You are being lifted out of this morass. You are going to live to him. You are going to have the divine nature. The divine nature is immortal. Uh, you're not going to go down in flames with this world. You're going to continue. Even though if the Lord tarry, you will die, you won't die. You will continue alive with God, and you await the resurrection of the dead. You are delivered from this world, and you are a citizen of the world to come. That is the highest value anyone can be given, should one have the right mind to look for what is truly valuable. Fourthly, I would point out, you, you, you individual, you have a higher blessing than the Old Testament prophets according to Peter. In uh, verse 10 through 12, Peter reminds us of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. We know that the gospel was in the world from the Garden of Eden. God gave the first promise of it when he said the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And in making a promise, he invited men to have faith in what he said. And so the first relationship of faith in God is in Genesis 3 and 15. But think about what you don't know if that is all the good news you've been preached. You know there will be a seed of the woman. What does that mean? You don't know. 
It's individual, it's singular, but who is this person? You don't know. How will he crush the serpent's head? You don't know. What will be the implications of the serpent's head being crushed? You have a general idea, but you don't know. You know that God has promised you deliverance, even in this moment of the fall. But what utter, utter lack of knowledge you have. You are left with trusting in God's goodness. He will make a way to save me. But you don't know. And then as God sends prophets through the ages, God reveals to those prophets bits and pieces of what he is going to do in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't tell them the name. He uses uh, metaphors like the holy branch, the, uh, the true seed of David, the, 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 the heavenly priest in Zechariah, that sort of thing. But you don't know who that is. You are beginning to get an image of what God is doing. It's becoming clearer and clearer, but you don't know. You're still waiting. You're longing. You're trusting God. Being saved is a matter of trusting God. But Isaiah did not know the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Malachi did not know the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't uh, hear Christ talking in chapter 3 of John, explaining everything that's happening and what God is doing to deliver man. Um, Ezra, the great scribe, didn't hear that. The prophets heard it in pieces, and they were uh, told by the spirit of Jesus Christ who was working in them. Don't, don't miss that part. Jesus was ministering to these former ages. The spirit was speaking through the prophets. But they were basically told, trust me, but you need to know you're being used to set up the benchmarks for the people who, when this happens, they will recognize it happened. Well, you're on the far side of that. You have been given to know. God has revealed to you everything he is doing in Jesus Christ. There is no further revelation you're going to be given, and the light is shining as bright as it's going to shine until the second coming, and you have been given to live in that era. There is nothing of the covenant of Christ hid from you. Think of the mercy of God to you. You were chosen to live at this time where everything God is doing, you know. You relate to God in Jesus of Nazareth, the person. You love him. You have faith in him. You are able to lay hold of the true lamb by name. What a gift of God to you. What an advantage you have. And not only do you have advantage over prophets, you have advantage over angels. That is our fifth thing we should note. Peter says even angels desire to look into these things. The larger catechism has an interesting question about angels and men. It's question 13, and this is how it reads. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? Answer, 
God, by an eternal and immutable decree out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof. And also, according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm not going to unpack all of it. But I would point out that the larger catechism points out that both angels and men have the problem of having fallen. There are fallen angels. We now call them demons. They're very real beings. They're of a spiritual nature. They're very different than us, but they're very real. And some of their number have fallen. All of the children of Adam have fallen. But... God, by his choice, has chosen to redeem some of the children of Adam. Where do we read in Scripture how God has chosen to redeem the fallen angels? What gift from his hand has he given them that, though fallen from his pleasure and into the depths of hell, they can be redeemed? Can you think of any passage that speaks of that? The eternal plan of salvation for angels. The answer is there is none. The catechism points out that God has extended the means thereof of salvation for man, but there is no means thereof mentioned of angels because there are none. Angels in God's good pleasure have not been given a means of grace. A fallen angel is fallen. There's no redemption. But to Adam's seed, God has chosen of his mere goodness, because of his plans and his purpose, to extend to men a way to be saved. Angels are in heaven looking at what God has done in Jesus Christ and going, this is amazing. How do we understand this? I long to look at the grace of God, which has not been extended to me but it has been extended to men. Angels don't get grace. You get grace. And angels stand agog. This is the gift of God to those who belong to him in Jesus Christ. Lastly, I would point out that Peter says something incredibly significant about what a real Christian sermon actually is. Uh, this is what he says. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The joke was made in seminary that one of the ways you can tell the Bible is the word of God is that it has survived 2,000 years of bad preaching. There's some real truth to that. 
Uh, not every sermon that has been delivered from a Christian pulpit has been a Christian sermon. But Peter here talks about a true Christian sermon. He says, you have heard the gospel preached to you. What was that Christian sermon like? What was its essence? Well, first of all, the spirit was using the preacher. Now, the preacher is not a prophet. And in every sermon, there is something of the preacher, and whatever that is, is probably the dross and the gold. But a Christian sermon is a sermon where a man is in the grip of the Spirit, and the Spirit is using him to declare the truth. The Spirit must be involved, or the sermon will do nothing. And Peter says, you have received all of this because God has sent men to preach to you, but they preached in the Spirit. The Spirit had hold of them. The Spirit was leading them to declare the truth, and it was specifically about these things we're talking about. I think that we would all blush in shame if God were to show to us how much time has been occupied in his churches by men talking from the pulpit about things that are not these things, talking about worldly things, talking about philosophical things. A Christian sermon is not a motivational speech. It is not an emphasis on the social gospel. It is not merely a philosophical talk. It is a declaration of these things which God has done in Jesus Christ, which the Spirit is leading the man to declare. The only thing worthy of your time to hear from a minister preaching is Jesus Christ. Not social renewal, not morality, not philosophy. Now, all of those things have a place, but if they are rooted in Jesus Christ, then they are worthy. The things that God is doing in Jesus Christ, that is the very essence of our faith. That is what you must hear. That is what will deliver you from hell. And that is what a Christian sermon preaches. The Spirit is motivating the man to declare what God has done in Christ. That is a sermon. And it is about the things that the apostles and the eyewitnesses have beheld. God has done something specific in history through a specific man at a specific time, and it's real. It is not just a story. It is not just a, 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 a myth. It is an actual event that God has done in history. Peter's fellow apostle, the apostle John, summed up their message in these words at the beginning of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That's a Christian sermon. It is about the man, Jesus Christ, and what God is doing in him. It is about things that have actually happened that people have seen and heard and been part of. It is things that angels find to be amazing. It is things that are so important, the prophets have foreshadowed them. It is things so significant, the Holy Spirit takes hold of men and guides them to preach them. That's what a Christian sermon is. And anything less than that is not worthy to be called a Christian sermon. Because the focus of our faith is what? It is the man Jesus the Christ, whom we love, whom we have faith in, who has filled us with such joy that it is inexpressible, and it is full of glory.